Morning. Morning. See, we're, we're working. We're up and running again with the microphone. If you weren't here last week, I had to use this guy, which makes me super uncomfortable. So I'm glad this is working this morning. And I'm kind of glad that Matt Turnbull is not here to tell me if I put the comma in the correct place or for my title of Restore a Sinner, Save a Soul. Some of you may know if it's correct or not. I, I don't know. We made it halfway. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, if not, we, we've made it halfway um, through our summer series on the DNA of the church. Just as a recap from the previous week so far, we've established the church by definition, what it means to be the church. The word itself means that we are called to gather together, to assemble with one another, especially on the Lord's Day, to observe baptism and the Lord's Supper. And last week, we looked at the the practices of the early church in Acts 2. And the reasons why we continue to practice those elements, such as the preaching of God's word, community, and fellowship with those in the local church, for us, a cornerstone, as well as devoting ourselves to prayer, giving, and worship. Today, we are going to look at some very difficult passages in the New Testament. These passages explain the necessity for the purity of the church, as well as the command and instructions how to keep it undefiled. Part of that process is called or known as church discipline. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, especially just the... And this is just a hard sermon to preach. It's, it's, it's not because I disagree with what the Word of God says or maybe, maybe a little intimidated to preach it. The difficulty in preaching this text is the significance of what it implies for those who refuse to submit to Christ as Lord. But I should make it clear from the get-go, the purpose of church discipline and its desired result, 100% of the time, is always to restore someone to the church and to the Lord. That is always the goal. The goal is never to excommunicate someone permanently, ever. Never should it be done with those intentions. Now, this topic can bring a bit of confusion, and to be fair, it's not always done, biblically speaking, or correctly, which brings even more confusion. And if this is a topic you've never heard preached on, or is a practice of the church, it's quite understand. even if you have, it's still quite understandable that that, that term, church discipline, may strike you as unloving. Or how in the world can the one who forgives our sin by grace alone, by the blood of Christ alone, how can that Lord who died for our sin also instruct the local church to remove someone 
from fellowship. Specifically, though, to remove an unrepentant, and that's a key word there, a unrepentant sinner. Therefore, we'll look at the New Testament and see why the Lord instructs his church to remove someone from fellowship. And then we'll see how the Lord instructs a local congregation to remove someone from fellowship. And then finally, we'll conclude with the purpose of church discipline. And again, ultimately, we'll see that restoring the person to the Lord was the intended goal from the start. First, we're going to see that the church is called to keep herself undefiled. So point one, keep the church pure. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. If you turn your Bibles or just read along with me, the Apostle Paul writes to Corinth, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister and is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Well, Heavenly Father, we're starting off with a tough passage here this morning. Um, my God, I pray that, that one message just from this passage alone that's exalted is in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And that sacrifice is once and for all. And I hope you can bring clarity to how 
can our sins be completely forgiven? But yet the Apostle Paul, and even more so the Lord Jesus Christ, as we will get into deeper into the New Testament, how he commands his church to keep it pure and to remove someone. Help us have clarity on that, Lord. God, help us to be faithful, to practice what we preach. May your grace and spirit be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the priorities of the local church is to keep her pure. In this instance, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, in order to keep the bride of Christ pure, the Apostle Paul says, the person who is living in such grievous sin should be removed from their fellowship. Because sin, like a little bit of leaven, spreads throughout the whole batch of dough, and this man's individual sin is actually affecting the entire congregation. And Paul explains the negative impact it is having on the congregation. An individual sin within the context of the local church doesn't just affect the person who is sinning. Paul says it actually affects the entire congregation. And, here's, and we see that in verses 2 and 6. Paul says you're arrogant. Should you not be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Your boasting, verse 6, is not good. Paul says, you have a man who is committing such wickedness that not even the pagans do. The Gentiles, pagans, those who don't follow Christ or believe in God or the one true God. You have a man who's committing something that, that, that those who don't even show up to worship they don't even practice. And they're boasting about it. They're bragging about it. In, in other words, the sin of this one man has perverted the grace of God in the church of Corinth in such a way that, that now they're, they're just bragging about how gracious they are toward this man who's living in such wickedness. It's, it's very common today for evangelicals to take this Corinth approach. They want to be gracious to sinners. And we should be. And we should be gracious. But they want to use the grace of God, regardless of the extent of evil, as a way to show how loving they are Towards others. In turn, that little leaven spreads throughout the entire congregation, and, and, and they begin using the grace of God not only as a license to sin, but also as a way to applaud themselves as such loving and kind people. Paul says it's not loving, it's not kind, it's arrogant to boast. And presumptuous sin. I don't know how else to communicate this. Leaving a brother or a sister, a fellow Christian, a member of our church, in unrepentant sin is not only destructive for them on earth, but it's also guiding them toward a path of an eternal consequence. 
And therefore, the most loving thing may not be loving to the world outside us, may not even appear loving to, certain, to some Christians, but the most loving thing the church can do is to rebuke their sin, exhort them to flee from evil and to run to Christ and to remind them it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. If you run to Christ, He will forgive you. Forgiveness is there. It's offered at the foot of the cross. The issue with the person in 1 Corinthians 5 and those who, 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 who are in jeopardy of inheriting the kingdom of God, it's not that they can't be forgiven, it's that they refuse to repent. The Word of God says anything contrary to calling someone out of the fiery depths of hell, it's not, it's not loving, it's arrogant, it's destructive. There's a qualifier, too, about who is in sin. This is, this is a good just little observation. Who does the church have a responsibility to call out of sin? We see this in this passage. A, a, a Christian, a member of the local church. Paul calls the man a brother, which means he is referring to the man as a Christian. At some point in time... This man in Corinth had to have been affirmed by that local church as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's even an argument for membership because if there wasn't a formal way of affirming believers in that local church, what are they going to remove this man from? Now just look at the text for a minute and see that Paul makes a distinction between this man as a brother in Christ, he makes a distinction that this man is a Christian and an unbelieving world. Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. At verse 10, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, right? Unbelievers. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. In case no one has realized it yet, this world's full of sinners. But actually, here's the, here's the distinction. I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a Christian. And is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges the outsiders. God judges the world. The local church is to judge the inside. And God's judgment is remove the evil person from among you. Remove the unrepentant sinner from among you. It's affecting the entire body of Christ. And Paul says... The local church has no jurisdiction over those who are not members of the church. Which means anyone can show up on any Sunday and they can be living in any type of grievous sin that they want to be. But Paul says, look, if they're not a member, you have no jurisdiction over them whatsoever. Why? Well, for one, they've never been affirmed, but they've never professed Christ as Lord. They've never repented from their sin. 
They'd never been baptized and added or affirmed by the local church. That's why he says, don't, don't judge unbelievers. Judge those who have professed to believe and are living in unrepentant sin. Oh, so the point is church discipline is only for the church. It may seem unfair, but we're the only ones who have professed Christ as Lord. And those who are living in those types of grievous sins that have not professed Christ as Lord, we don't hold them accountable to that. Which, which also means who we affirm as Cornerstone or any local church and who we don't affirm is of vital importance because not only is removing someone necessary for the purity of the church, but now we see that so is who we add to it. The New Testament calls us the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6. Okay. 16 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, For we are the, well, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's you. That's us. God dwells with us. He walks among us, though we can't see it. Therefore, verse 17, come out of them. Come out of the world and be separate. Undefile yourself, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. As we look at the tabernacle that, that, that Moses was instructed to build, and we look at the temple Solomon's instructed to build. It's the place where God dwelt among his people, and that place had to remain holy in order for God to dwell there. Paul's telling Corinth, listen, now you're. God does not dwell in buildings. does not dwell in a physical tabernacle that is built by human hands. Instead, he dwells among the church. You are now the temple of the living God. Therefore, God's dwelling place must remain fit, holy for his presence. Now Christ, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross makes us fit by cleansing us with his blood. And the, and the Holy Spirit perfects us and sanctifies us. But the New Testament calls us kingdom of priests. And we are called to keep the place where God dwells holy. And we, and we do that in two very practical ways. Number one... We purge sin from our own individual lives. Application. If you're living in sin, repent from it. Number two, we purge unrepentant sinners from our congregation. Now, now there's a process there. We're going to get into it. So, so just hold your horses on that one because it's, it's heavy. It's weighty. What Paul is telling Corinth and what the Lord instructs us, it's not a joke, right? If you've ever seen the movie uh, A Few Good Men with Demi Moore and Tom Cruise, there's a, there's a scene, you know, he's a hotshot lawyer for the, for the Navy. He's going down to Cuba. I think he's going down to Cuba. And she knows he's, he's a wise guy. And she says, 
watch yourself down there. They take it seriously. And he says, they take what seriously? And she says, being Marines. The Apostle Paul, the church of Jesus Christ, is to take this command seriously. Paul takes Christ as Lord seriously. He tells Timothy that the Lord's foundation is inscribed with this. He knows those who are his and those who confess he is Lord must turn from wickedness. There is no place in the church of God, of the living God, for unrepentant sin. There's a place for sinners. We all are. Hear the distinction. There's a place for sinners, but there's not a place for unrepentant sin. The temptation to believe that we're doing an unloving act by removing an unrepentant sinner, it, it could not be further from the truth. Paul actually applies that in this passage. Sorry, in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that... There's a title for a sermon. Hand that one over to Satan. Why? So that, so that his flesh would be destroyed, but his spirit would be saved. Paul says, release him. Okay, Paul, how in the world can we be Christ-like and hand someone over to Satan? Because the purpose is to give them over to their desires so that they would eventually become broken and turn back to the Lord. In other words, turn this man over to live complete rebelliousness toward God. Because where that will eventually lead him where that leads all of us, any of us, none of us are secluded from this. Where rebelliousness to God leads is utter ruin and misery. And at that point, church, may the grace of God lead him to repentance and restore him to Christ and the church. Deliver him over, hand him over so that his soul would be saved. Point two, when is church discipline necessary? A common question is what type of sin would a person be excommunicated for? My first church I ever pastored in, I was, uh, it was, a, it was a, I don't know if it was a fundamental Baptist church, but it was a Baptist church. It was an old one, um, and there weren't many people. And one time as I preached on this, a lady, older lady, stood up and said, well, what, are you going to kick me out for dancing? I does the Bible say we cannot dance? No, it does not. 
The Bible does not call it a sin. The Bible doesn't even say drinking is a sin. The Bible says or, or, that, that, that being a drunkard, right? No. No, that, 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 that's where the church has gone wrong. It's probably why people have been so church hurt is because what people have done is use their own convictions or personal preferences as a way to tear each other down instead of build up. And it's, instead of actually obeying what Scripture says warrants church discipline, they just do it by their own agendas. So we should definitely look at what warrants church discipline. Three, three biblical categories. Unrepentant, grievous sin. Unrepentant means refusing to turn away from that grievous sin. I know I'm in sin. I'm not going to stop doing it. Number two, a divisive person, a person who will not stop causing division in the church. And number three, doctrinal heresy. We'll get, in, we'll get into all of these. Number one, unrepentant, grievous sin. This isn't so much the action, looking at these passages in the New Testament. It's just seeing what is grievous toward God. What brings shame and reproach on the name of Christ? Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, Therefore be imitators of God, that's clear, as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexually immoral immorality and impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as it is proper for saints or holy ones obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable but rather give thanks for no one recognize this every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of christ and of God. Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Release them to Satan to destroy the flesh. Well, what's the works of the flesh, Paul? Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. There we go. Carouse, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before. What's the warning, Paul? Those who practice, those who continue to do this, who live unrepentant, those who continue to practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant, grievous sin is a type of lifestyle that denies Christ is Lord. A lifestyle that lives Christ as Lord submits themselves to the Word of God, to works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. The objection. But we're all sinners. That's true. That's why the distinction is so important. It's when a person becomes unrepentant, which means that whenever someone comes to them in love and says, hey, man, this brings shame and reproach on the name of Christ. Stop. For goodness sake, stop. 
And their response is, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want anyway. That's unrepentance. You see, we all sin. Those who the church has affirmed as brothers and sisters in Christ have been affirmed because they made a public profession. Baptism made a public profession. They were choosing to die to sin, not live in it, and they were choosing to live to Christ. The Word of God says, but if a time ever comes where where that person chooses to stop dying to sin, then the church is to say that we can no longer affirm your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the church can no longer affirm a testimony that has drastically changed to such as that. Number two, divisiveness in the church, a divisive person. Romans 16 actually fits with doctrinal heresy as well. Verses 17 and 18, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching, contrary to teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive their hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Ah, I'm sure it doesn't flatter to talk about this type of message. Titus 3.10-11, through 11, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning, he is self-condemned. And in the Lord's Supper, when we, when we look at 1 Corinthians 11, we, we see that a person who is causing division within Corinth or any local church is actually, and sowing discord in that church, is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and actually drinking judgment against themselves. Loved ones, the church of Christ is to be united. And when someone refuses to submit themselves to it, and continues to sow discord even after being warned multiple times. Paul said, avoid. Avoid such a type of person. Reject them as a brother or sister. Finally, doctrinal heresy. False teachings on major doctrines. Paul says to Timothy, teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine... It does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's false doctrine? Things opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the teaching that promotes godliness, so what we teach is be holy, right? Not live in sin. He is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among the people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. 2 John 1, 9-11, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The apostle John is so clear in his writing. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. And do not greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. Can we disagree about things? Absolutely. Spiritual things, absolutely. Biblical things, absolutely. But it depends on what things. You cannot disagree with doctrines that are essential to Christianity, and without them, you would no longer have Christianity, such as the Trinity. God is three persons in one nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal and co-eternal. The virgin birth, that the Son of God became incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary. The gospel, saved by grace alone. That Jesus died and three days later rose again and ascended to the throne of heaven and the imminent return of our Lord and King. You cannot reject those. You may not know them all by heart, may not even understand them all or be able to articulate them well, but you can't go around teaching doctrines that are contrary to those essential teachings. It's a divisive, well, it's divisive and a rejection of sound teaching that is the church classifies as doctrinal heresy. Implication, what we believe and confess as a church about Christianity matters. And one of the ways that we stay pure, that we're told that we stay pure as a church is by holding fast to the apostolic teachings, to the New Testament, the Word of God. And we continue to stay pure by refining ourselves by reading them and studying them and submitting to them. The church cannot get sloppy in its theology. Okay, point three, the process of restoring a brother or sister. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile or tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Having that passage in context of church discipline really makes the refrigerator theology of where two or three gather, I am there among them. A little bit different. Jesus is saying, well, he told Peter, on this rock I will build the church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Matthew 16, right? Whatever you bind on heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose on heaven will be loosed on earth. And, and that's entry into the kingdom. We affirm professing believers. And now two chapters later, Jesus says in Matthew 18, you also have the keys of the kingdom to loose. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We have the authority to affirm and the authority to remove. And what's the basis? We affirm profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 
What do we remove? When they stop professing. Well, how do you know if they stop professing? Professing. They begin to live in unrepentant sin or become divisive and refuse to stop or begin to teach doctrinal heresy. Now, Matthew 18, the Lord gave us a step-by-step process in how we too are how we're to approach one of our loved ones in sin. It's actually like tiered step. Step one, verse 15. If your brother's in sin, if he sins against you, go tell him. If he listens, it's over. Great. Praise the Lord. If not, step two, verse 16. If he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that you may have a testimony and be able to give a good report on what's going on. Now, if he listens to that, wonderful. If he doesn't, that's step three. Verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to that group, tell it to the church. That's when we lose sleep. This is a long process. This isn't just like a three-day experience. This is the church continuing to plead and plead and plead. And and it should be noted, I I don't know that I just have a, a scripture to proof text what I'm about to say, but... When we call people out of sin, we should come alongside them and and try to provide help for them in that situation. This is the tough part. This is the, we've, we've been praying. We've been communicating. Hopefully we've been communicating. Time has gone by. I still refuse. And when that happens, Jesus says, They don't listen then, even to the church. Let them be like a pagan, a Gentile, and a tax collector to you. At that point, who who cares about membership? Forget about being removed from membership. I've seen people that are so upset that their names are being removed from membership. Why? That's the least of your worries if this happens. Because what Jesus is saying in this final step in Matthew 18, verse 17, if this happens, if the final step of 17 happens, you're not showing evidence that you're reborn. You're not showing evidence you've been born again by the Spirit. You're not showing evidence that you're in the kingdom of Christ. That is why he says treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile pagan. The tax collector was the scum of the earth who impressed their own people And the pagan is still a sinner, separated from God. Jordan read verses 21 and 22 following this passage of Matthew 18 because they're connected. Peter says... How many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? And you got to love Peter, right? Seven times? Like, oh, I bet it's a better answer than John or Thomas are going to give. And Jesus says, no, no. Whatever your translation is, 77 or seven times 77. Loved ones, don't be confused about preaching about church discipline today and about the passages about this because out of all places in the world, the church is where forgiveness should be extended Every time 
someone confesses sin every single time. The church must never withhold forgiveness from anyone because if you continue to read on in Matthew 18 after verses 21 and 22, you get to the servant who had just been forgiven by his master and then went to his servant and began to choke him and would not forgive his debt. What is Jesus' point? If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. The church, loved ones, cornerstone, we are the banner of Christ crucified to the world. We have been forgiven and we will forgive. There's not one person who can enter this door. If they're a member of our church, it says, I confess, I repent, that we should ever withhold forgiveness from. Church, do we forgive them? Absolutely, hallelujah. Restore them to the Lord. And there's the process after that, right? Depending. In 2 Corinthians, we get a glimpse they had taken Paul's prior letter very seriously regarding members in unrepentant sin. So at first they were boasting and arrogant about it. And now we see that some man in, 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 in Paul's next letter to Corinth was forgiven and restored. Well, Paul tells him to be restored. Second Corinthians 2, 4 through 11, For I wrote to you with many tears out of extremely troubled and anguished heart. Not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me as to some degree. Not to exaggerate to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Is the man in 2 Corinthians that Paul's writing about that they need to reaffirm and forgive. Is that the same man that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 5? We don't know for certain. And here's what we do know. The Corinthian church took the command Paul gave in that first letter very seriously. And whether or not it's the same man, it's the same church who stopped being arrogant and became faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. They obeyed. They put this man under church discipline, which obviously causes anguish for, for Paul, for the church, even, and for this man. It eventually led to his suffering, but it, but it also led to this man's repenting and godly remorse. And not only does Paul say forgive him, but he also tells him to comfort him. Comfort this man. Look at Paul's final words. Reaffirm your love for him. Do it in the presence of Christ, the church, so that Satan, our accuser, would be silenced by the blood of Christ. Okay, he doesn't say that. I added that part. 
Reaffirm your love for him. And he says, do it in the presence of Christ. Do it in the presence of the church so that Satan can hold nothing over this man. Why can't he hold anything over this man? Because the blood of Jesus Christ washes away this sin just as much as any other. You see, what Satan meant to destroy once the person was handed over, the church restored in the presence of Christ. For where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is among us. And there he was among them. Church discipline and restoration, reaffirming love in the presence of the church and Christ, when it when it escalates that greatly, it seems terrifying, it is. Anguishing, sufferable, absolutely. But seeing a sinner repent and turn back to Christ, there is nothing more glorious than that. That is why Christ died. I want to conclude with one brief story. It's a true story and encouragement from James the book of James. One of my professors and pastors, well, he wasn't my pastor, but he was a pastor at the time. At one point, a teenager who was a member of the church, his church, confessed that she had become pregnant. She was a teenager. She was not married. Well, there's, I didn't really speak on this, but does the church always have to know about sin? No, usually the sphere of influence of how big the sin is going to be get, or is going to get, and when a girl's getting pregnant, that's a pretty big sphere of influence. Everyone's going to know about it. So the pastor said to her, hey, she repents, okay, I'm going to bring you up on stage. And I'm going to say that you've brought shame and reproach on the name of Christ. And do you repent? And when you say yes, then I'm going to turn to the church. And I'm going to say, church, do we forgive? And the church is going to forgive. And just one of the things that it did is it cleans the church's conscience to not feel awkward about helping someone that's living in sin. Yes, she did live in sin, but she repented. And now the church should reaffirm their love for her. And they did. They did. And after service that day, another teenage girl came up to him, timid, asked if she could talk, and he sat down next to her. And she couldn't, she couldn't speak it out. She couldn't tell him what was on her heart. And he just went out on a limb and he said, I'm just going to guess. I'm just going to ask you. You're pregnant, aren't you? And she said, yes. I was scheduled to have an abortion this week. But after watching the girl confess and be forgiven by the church, I want to confess and I want to have this baby that follow Christ as Lord.
That's an old story. That child that was going to be aborted is an adult now. God knows better than we do. James says, my brothers, my sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his or her wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Why do we do this? The Lord doesn't just save people physically. The word of God says, return a sinner, save a soul. And so therefore, I urge you, be reconciled to Christ. Let us pray. Father, you, you show a love to us through adopting us, who rejected you, through the redemption of Christ, who we rejected even in unbelief, who even after we've come to believe, we still reject and sin against. And yet you do not remove your spirit from us. You still dwell among us even being unworthy. You sanctify us and you make us more into the image of Christ. God, I pray that this word, that this message today from your word, your inspired word, would not rest on minds and hearts hardly, but would dwell deeply and richly. And the takeaway wouldn't be that, that, that oh man, the church may not forgive but a greater understanding that you will always forgive. No matter what the sin is, those who come to you, you will forgive. And that is why you sent your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Not to condemn the world, but to save it by his blood. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.